You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. And so now, as is our custom, I want to invite you to jump in uh, to something that forms the life of our church, and that is to open the Bible with us. And so if you don't have a Bible, you'll find uh, hopefully a smart device that will get you near one or, or someone uh, next to you that, that can do that. But if you don't, there's a paperback Bible that you'll find in the tray of the chair in front of you. And, and I would invite you to not be afraid of the table of contents. We'll be in the Gospel of Matthew. So, so even if this is the first time you've ever opened a Bible, uh, as, as we share as a church, something amazing happens that we, we don't really believe that we open the Bible. We believe that the Bible actually opens us. And by the power of God's Spirit, we, we try to expose that which is in it. Right? The word you'll hear me use is exposit. We, we begin to unfold and expose what's in the Bible, but the Holy Spirit actually begins to expose that which is in us. And so if you've never opened a Bible, you'll find in the Gospel of Matthew and in, in, in the Table of Contents is the first of the four Gospels. That is literally the good newses of Jesus and who he is and what he has done. And it's the first book in the New Testament, the story of this, this, this new covenant come to life in Jesus. And so, so you'll find in the big numbers of the chapters and the little numbers of the verses. And we're in the eighth chapter, and we're going to read verse 28 through the very end of the chapter, verse 34. Now, as you're making your way there, let me give you a quick recap. The first few chapters of the Gospel of Matthew were introduced to Jesus and his birth narrative, his miraculous birth coming to be in the place of uh, the lineage of sinful and rebellious people, baptized like, like a sinner would, beginning to take their place, but then teaching like, like Moses would, uh, as a, a deliverer of God's people out of slavery. So Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is what's called the Sermon on the Mount, uh, this picture of a new Moses that's come. But before then, Matthew gives us a summary about what Jesus is doing that helps us understand what we'll be reading today. And he, that is Jesus, went throughout all of Galilee. That's the outskirts, right? You're from a small town, right? If you're from a town that's hard to pronounce or no one's ever heard of, this is you, okay? Jesus goes to the outskirts, to the outsiders, to the outcasts. And he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel. Again, that word, good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so his fame spread throughout all of Syria, Again, broadly beyond uh, this kind of religious, this religious area, right? And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and even paralytics, and he healed them. So this is the work of Jesus, declaring the good news of God's kingdom that's come in and through him. An upside-down kingdom, not the kind of political kingdom you and I are aware of, right? A kingdom of, of dictators, monarchs, or politicians who want to send other people to be sacrificed for their political ends. This kingdom's different. This king comes and it's upside down. This king goes out before his people to die in their place so that they would experience life. And this king, this kingdom being announced in Jesus... It comes with miracles and powerful acts and signs and wonders, including teaching authoritatively. So the end of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most, it's the most famous uh, sermon in recorded history. At the very end, they hear this teaching and they say what? And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had, do you hear the language of the kingdom and of power and authority? He's the one who is teaching with authority, not as their scribes. 
all the way to the end of the, cha- of the end of the entire book, in the 28th chapter, the last words of Jesus. He says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain, again, outskirts, which Jesus has directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. After all, some doubted that he really had been resurrected. And Jesus came and said to them, again, all authority and in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. From beginning to end, Matthew wants us to see the power and authority of Jesus. Now, for you, that's, uh, that might be scary, because you and I, when we hear the words power and authority, we immediately think of someone who's abused them, don't we? We can immediately think of some time where someone we know with power or authority over us or over someone else abused it and used it for their own ends. And so for you, I want you to see the power of authority, the power and authority of Jesus as in a redemption of power and authority. So in light of this reflection on power that we'll see a picture of in the text we read today, I want to start with a question I began with the last few weeks. If you had the power to do anything at all, what would you do? And what does that say about you? No, seriously, if you could have anything, right? Maybe, maybe you think of the genie and the lamp, right? If you had three wishes, right? And you're like, well, I would wish for more wishes. Okay, so you just, you just want safety and security, right? You're, you're scared of running out of good things, right? But if you had power, right? A genie and a lamp, a wish, you could have power to have anything you ever wanted. What would you do with that power? To change things, to create things, to make things, to do things, to undo things. If you had the power to do anything you could, you could possibly do, anything you could even imagine, What would you do with that power, and what does that say about you? Because we're introduced to Jesus. God, who has come to be with us in the flesh, and he had that power. And we get to see what he does with it, and we begin to see what we learn about him as a result. So, the second of this second triplet of miracles that we find from chapter 8, 9, and 10, beginning in verse 28 of Matthew chapter 8. And when he, that is Jesus, came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, Go. So they came out. And they went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. I want to ask you a question in light of the spiritual theme of this chapter and this passage. Where do you feel spiritually safe? 
Where in your life do you feel spiritually safe? Now, if you're in this room and maybe the thought of spiritual matters is foreign or that seems something like we've, we've progressed past, like we, we, don't, we don't think about spiritual matters uh, we, we, don't, we don't dabble into the spiritual. We're, we're too enlightened, and, and, and our scientific and developed minds don't think in such a way, except for every year at the end of this month, right? Where do you feel spiritually safe? As you think on what a spiritual realm might be and what a spiritual thing might be, where do you feel the most spiritually safe? Because Jesus introduces us to yet another theme that carries throughout the entirety of the Bible and how he specifically addresses it. This passage addresses the topic of the spiritual, quite literally here, the demonic spiritual beings that in this case have possessed these two people. And yet Jesus in, in his miracles and acts of power and his display of authority also speaks of, as we've seen, and three different times we'll see in these three chapters, interspersed between triplets of acts of power, a call to discipleship. The first triplet is summarized at the end of verse 17. We saw him perform miracles, right? The outcasts, all the people who were were not welcome. The leper he cleansed, right? The, The pagan centurion's servant he healed with just a command. And then we see the the person who was laid up, Peter's mother-in-law, was healed and then served. And the summary of all these healings in verse 17 apparently fulfills the prophetic word of Isaiah that he that is Jesus would come to take our illnesses and bear our diseases. Next, we see that he immediately asks people to come and follow them. You'll see the end of that section in verse 22. Jesus says, follow me and profoundly to the one who not that this isn't a good thing, but even a good thing that might keep them from following Jesus, says to the man who says he needs to go bury his father, he says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. So interspersed in between these triplets of acts of power are calls to discipleship. I believe that's for us to see that ultimately discipleship means submitting ourselves to the power and authority of Jesus. But we'll get to that in the weeks to come. So in this second triplet, Jesus has calmed the chaos of nature in a storm. And where the story ends, you look in verse 27, is where it begins today. They end with a question. After Jesus exercises authority over the chaos of nature, the men, that is his disciples, marveled and asked a question, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Who is this person that he has power an authority over even the chaos of nature. And the person, or in this case, persons, the Gospel of Mark tells us a legion who are able to answer that question that the disciples miss, who is this Jesus, are demons. <laughs> now, you hear me mention this in the weeks to come, but it's as if to say, like, who else would you trust to speak for the power of Jesus over nature than, as we saw, the wind and the waves? And if you find yourself wondering, like, who would have the authority to speak over spiritual matters, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say, demons. That is, if you were wondering about spiritual matters and wondering if there was an eyewitness, right? If there was, is there a person who is engaged in the spiritual? A demon would be your first guess. And so, we see two parts in this passage. Jesus casts out demons. And the second part 
We'll spend most of our time on the second part, people cast out Jesus. Now, I know at a certain point, because of that, I'm going to get tongue-tied and somewhere say demons cast out Jesus. It's not true. It's just me and my head can't put these together. So Jesus, in the first part, will spend the most time, cast out demons. And then the people who find out about this cast out Jesus. And as a result, we're going to learn something about Jesus and demons, about Jesus and evil and Jesus and the spiritual realm, Jesus and the demonic. And then we're going to learn about people and Jesus. So in that first part, Jesus evidently has authority and power in and over the spiritual realm. Now, there are tons of symbols in these chapters. And I told you, there's no way to get them all, but even you can see them. The symbolic language of Jesus is going to the Gentile outsiders, right? After all, there's a herd of pigs. Now, Pastor Tyler Sinclair gave us a crash course in the book of Daniel last week on the kosher laws. Uh, we, know we're, we're, we know we're not in Jewish territory when there are herds of pigs, Okay. But Jesus is going to the Gentile outsiders. But then also we saw in, the chap- in this whole chapter that Jesus is calling people, even outsiders, to go with him, to leave everything. And then Jesus calms the adversity that they would face along the way, namely the chaos of nature that threatened their lives. Jesus casts out the unclean things. But then we see the symbolic picture here that the people would rather have their unclean things than Jesus There's a significant financial or economic impact to the lordship of Jesus. After all, if herds of pigs all of a sudden dissipate and jump in the ocean, someone is going to have to pay. Someone lost a lot when Jesus came and took over. Ultimately, so that we'll see that Jesus is lord over the demonic, over the spiritual oppression that exists in the the world, and, and even demons, we see here, get a picture of Jesus better than we might. So the section of this highly symbolic text begins with the question that the disciples asked, who is Jesus? And who answers this question Matthew wants us to see? Demons. Verse 29, behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us? Did you hear that language? O son of God, have you come here to to torment us before the appointed time? So Jesus, if you follow the narrative up to this point, he says, I'm going to go, in verse 18, to the other side. They go through a storm. Jesus delivers them through. They uh, they get through the boat, and they land on the other side. This is verse 28. This is good news. They survived the storm and the chaos. They get to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes. And two demon-possessed men met him. They were coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. Evidently, these people were, these two men were under such a spiritual oppression that people were terrified of them. And so they kind of cast them out. Again, hear the thick and heavy symbolic language. They cast them out to the land of the dead, right? Go live, go dwell in the cemetery. So they lived among the graves, and it's as if Jesus, symbolically and powerfully, walks up and in some way like summons them out of the graves. But these people were so terrifying that they'd been cast out and abandoned. Now, I want to start with the question there that I think will help you see what we've seen for the beginning of chapter 8. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever longed for death? I mean, in the times you really don't want to admit to anyone else, have you ever had the despair of life such that you wished that this would all come to an end? And secondly, have you ever felt like an outcast? 
Have you ever felt like you don't belong? I know some of you feel it right now. And both of these different kinds of questions, I think, point at what Jesus means to accomplish here and demonstrate for us. There's good news for us, the despair of life and feel more at home among the dead. There's good news for us, for those because of sin have felt separated from God and even alienated from one another. Who is this Jesus? The demon's answer, the Son of God. So let's walk through some of these things. Jesus is the Son of God. This is a declaration that Matthew and so many other people will convince us of throughout the entirety of the Gospels, that Jesus, in some mysterious way, is God incarnate. That is, he has taken on flesh and come to be with us and for us and among us. And this is a powerful mystery. This is not not an equation that you will ever be able to solve intellectually. This is a mystery that we apprehend by faith. It is not something you will ever be able to quantify. To speak of Jesus as the, the third member of the Trinity, that is the God, the Father and Creator, the Son Jesus, the Redeemer, and the Spirit, the Sustainer, and the Advocate. These, this beauty of God's revelation to us is seen here in what the demons want you and I to hear, that Jesus is the Son of God. That is that Jesus is God. Because after all, the son of a duck is a duck, Right? I don't know why I thought of a duck. Yeah, I don't, know, I don't know why a duck just came to mind. I don't have any clue where that came from. It's the first thing that came to mind. But to think of the progeny of a particular thing is to think of its identity. And Jesus here, by the demon's admission, see, is seen now publicly as the Son of God. He is God, God's own Son, mysteriously the creator and sustainer of the universe, and at the same time, an organic being that is like grass and could die all to mysteriously point to who God is and what God is like. So we would definitively know that God is not up there and out there, but God is with us and for us. So, in Matthew's gospel, this theme that runs through it, the answer to this question, who is Jesus, we'll hear this again. Jesus will ask his own disciples this in chapter 16 and chapter 18. But with clarity, we want to see here what, what, what Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus has authority and the power over the demonic, because he himself is God. Jesus is divine power incarnate. Jesus is in the flesh, the might and power of God over all things demonic and spiritual. Now, side note here, this is where, this is where, this is where uh, especially other places in the New Testament, but even here, often modern Western readers are shocked by the opposite of the thing that would have probably shocked the first century readers who originally read this text. Now, we, we talk about this regularly, right? This, the, the things that shock us now as we read an old, like an older New Testament text are not meant to not be shocking. It's just that often it shocks us in the opposite way the original readers would have done this, right? We see this in Ephesians chapter 5, the picture of a husband and a wife. And we hear that a husband is to lay down his life for his wife, and, and, and the wife is to, to submit to the husband as a picture of the gospel. And so as modern Western readers, we read a wife submits to a husband. That's abuse. That's sexism, right? And that shocks us. But the original would have heard like a man lays down his life for his wife. What are we doing? Right? Like, and, and the things that would have shocked the original hearers are the opposite from the things that would shock us. Now, the goal isn't that we'd be shocked by opposite things. The goal is that we'd be so shocked that we would look to God for answers. And the same thing happens here. You're shocked right now as Western intellects like that there's demons, 
right? But you might miss that the original readers of this are shocked that Jesus is Lord over them. So just hang on a minute. Go back, right? And the same way we would understand like how, how, we, how we think about what we trust and what we believe, I want to introduce you to an idea here that we define things usually by three different bases, right? One, how does the Bible define it? Two, how does the history of Christianity define it? And three, how does global Christianity define it? And so we talk about this with respect to something like persecution, right? If you're like, I'm being persecuted, you go, okay, thank you, appreciate that. How, before you believe that, how does the Bible define persecution? How does the history of the Christian church define persecution? Right? How would a first, second, or third century Christian say they're persecuted? What do they mean? And then lastly, how would global Christians, Christians who speak different languages, right, different cultures around the world define persecution? And if your definition of persecution wouldn't be agreed upon by those three things, then it's not persecution, at least not in a way we care about. It may stink. It may be awful. You may, it may be unfair. It may actually even be unjust. But we love to define things apart from God's revelation, apart from, apart from time and history, right? And definitely apart from Christian community. And so the spiritual realm is another place where we would rather think that we are smarter than the Bible, than the history of the church, and even global Christians. And here's the thing. Our African and South American brothers and sisters in Jesus can help us here. Because if I were speaking to a group of African Christians about the spiritual realm, they'd be like, that's right, absolutely. Let me tell you a story, right? If I were talking to my South American brothers and sisters, like, hey, let me tell you about the spiritual realities of things, they'd be like, absolutely. But I sit here and talk to you, you Western intellects, you're so enlightened that there's a spiritual reality, and I know the, the first thing that comes up is like, I can't believe that's true. And that's okay. But I want you to begin to be invited into what I, what I share with you. What does God say to us in Scripture here? What, do the history, what does the history of Christianity have to teach us here? And then what do global Christians have to teach us here? They'll keep us grounded that there really is a spiritual reality. There really is. And the thing that might be shocking to you, that there is a spiritual reality, that there is demonic oppression, might distract you, you enlightened person, from the powerful message, Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus has authority and power over every realm, including the spiritual. And even then, I'm introducing the idea of the spiritual or the demonic, not so that you will live in fear, but so that you will see what Jesus is like. Second thing we learned from them, Jesus is God, Jesus is Lord, is that Jesus is judge. He will judge at the appointed time. Listen to the way they, the, the demon's response, uh, the response, they say, what have you to do with us, O son of God? So they're caught off guard. They don't know what's going on. They're shocked and terrified. And then he says, have you come here to torment us before the time? Now notice, their issue is not that, they've, that Jesus has come to torment them. They seem to have accepted that. They, their problem is scheduling. Did you catch that? It's as if they knew that was going to happen, but like, Whoa, Jesus! I'm so we this is not what we had on the calendar. 
And that shouldn't shock us because this is what the New Testament teaches us. Acts 10, 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he that is Jesus is the one appointed to, by God to what? Be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Later you see, uh, uh, again in, in the book of Acts, as the gospel is spreading around, the, the times of ignorance, so you hear this language of an appointed time, of judgment and that Jesus will be that judge. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn from trusting and loving lesser things and to treasure and see Jesus for who he is. Because he that is, or he that is God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by what? How would we know that that man who is to judge the living and the dead will be that one? To raise him from the dead. Paul even tells Timothy, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the, hear that language again, the proper time. Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God, but Jesus is also judge. Jesus is also judge and there is a time of judgment that comes and the demons testify to it. They don't quibble. They don't disagree that a time of judgment is coming for them that have rebelled against God. We might. They only wonder if this really is the time that it should happen. They're only shocked that they weren't aware. And so, friend, here, Jesus is Lord over the spiritual because Jesus is judge over all. Now, again, I, that, I know that that will shock our sensibilities to some extent. And I invite you to press into that. Maybe especially if you're not a Christian in the room, if you're wondering about who this Jesus is, and I say Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead, he will judge that which is righteous and unrighteous. And if that feels uncomfortable, man, I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to the discomfort, right? Welcome to seeing Jesus as he really is. And to consider the possibility that Jesus is what he says he is, and he is who he says he came to be. And he is judge. And I want to invite you to consider, you might already know this, right? Remember the same thing that like your Western sensibility would be like, I don't like, we don't like judgment, okay? We don't like the demonic or spiritual. And I joked about it a moment ago, but like, but there's something in us that can't ever put it away. And October 31st, every Halloween, we like, we're kind of like, oh yeah, that's a, we don't really believe that. Spiritual things are not really real, but we keep making horror flicks and people keep buying tickets to them. And so if we're so enlightened, why are we so fascinated with that? Is it possible there's something in us that actually reflects God's character and nature, an awareness of a realm of the spiritual, that there are some things in this life that science and your own eyes and ears cannot explain? There are some things that defy our ability to explain them. And that doesn't mean that all the things that confuse us fit into the spiritual realm. That's not helpful. But it is to open and pique our curiosity for the possibility that you don't really know everything. And so, in the same way, as we begin to think that there might be a spiritual realm over which Jesus is Lord, there is also a judge, and he is righteous. And the same question I would ask you, you know that thing that really irks you about the world? You know that great injustice that you're experiencing or you see in the world? Maybe it was an injustice that was perpetrated against you. Maybe an injustice that's historical. Maybe an injustice you see elsewhere. 
I just want to ask you for a minute. How do you know? How do you know that that's unjust? Where does your sense of righteousness come from? And again, is it possible that you reflect God's character, that there really is a good and evil, and that you and I have a right and good response to see that which is unjust and want it to be fixed? Friend, here's the second offensive mystery. Jesus will fix it. Jesus will wield judgment. And this shouldn't shock us because for the rest of us who know this is the case, we know that Jesus will judge the living and the dead and he will be the one who in Matthew chapter 13 and even Matthew chapter 25 will separate those of the righteous that is the the wheat from the weeds that is the fruitful from the from the awful he will separate the sheep the the beloved of God from the goats the the parasites right this is the picture of what Jesus has come to do as he says not just to bring unity but and also to bring sword to divide, to show what is good and what is bad. And friend, as awful as you think that injustice in the world really is, your hatred of that thing pales in comparison to Jesus. Because our, our indignation against injustice is selfish, right? It's narcissistic even. But Jesus' indignation over that injustice is perfect and pure and righteous. Here's the last thing I think we see, or at least about Jesus and his interaction with the demons. Jesus has power over evil. Jesus has power over evil. <laughs> Have you come here to torment, before this, uh, torment us before the time? Now, there's a herd of pigs. There's a herd of pigs feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Now, uh, you might wonder, why is Jesus being nice to these demons? He's not. He's simply, he's simply using them because he has power and authority over them. He's using them as a lesson. He means to teach us something. In the same way that, that we find in the beginning of the book of Job, that God is not overpowered by the enemy who wants to, wants to make a mess of Job's life. Instead, God is happy to let Job show Job in the world and us something about the character of God. And so also, he's not being nice to them and and the way we know that is this terse response. It's a colloquial. That is a, a, commonly, a commonly held use or, or, or a common vernacular term in, in that particular time. And he says to them, go. That's it. Go. It's a dismissive term. Like I said, it's a, a colloquial term. Arnton Gingrich, for all of you language nerds, because you might not believe what I'm about to say, Arnton Gingrich says that this is actually more simply a colloquial speech of the word Go. That is colloquial speech. That's what we call slang. Right? So like the middle schoolers, Jesus says, you're done. <laughs> Again, laugh. Now you see the power Jesus has over the evil things in the world. Jesus, don't beat us up. And he goes, bye, Felicia. <laughs> Go. Some translators say, off you go, or fine, there you go. That's the authority Jesus has. Now again, let me, let me tie some of these things together. Ephesians chapter 6, encouraging the church at Ephesus, the apostle Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. That's awful, right? Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So 
The Apostle Paul wants you and I as Christians, like this church at Ephesus, to begin to realize that the things that we face in the world are deeper and more spiritual than we realize. The things that bother us, our anxiety, our depression, our fear, the things we trust in, the things we run to, the things we hope in, they have a spiritual component to them. Now, I want to encourage you. The goal isn't that you and I would leave having been aware of the spiritual reality to be afraid of it. Instead, we're introduced to the existence of the spiritual so that we would realize Jesus is Lord over it all. I want you to begin to realize that there's a spiritual dynamic to every single thought you have. I want you to begin to realize that there's a spiritual dynamic to every decision, every word, everything about your life. Not so that you'll be afraid of demons at every turn, but that you'll realize that Jesus is sovereign over every single molecule. And here's how I know. The the pagan way of reading this would be to envision what we describe as dualism. That God and evil, right? That God and Satan are duking it out. And that you and I are kind of held in the balance, right? And that's only sort of true. That dualism, that pagan view, is that God and evil are somehow equal beings. That they're somehow like trading punches. And I get to skip to the end here. There's this picture in Revelation chapter 12, a picture of God delivering his people through this this woman, this woman who's about to give birth, and there's a a dragon waiting to devour the, the baby that this woman's about to give birth to. And God, as in the great story of redemption, just delivers them, sets them free. And immediately after he sets them free and has this place set aside for her and for the baby, right, delivering us, we find out that this really angered the dragon. And so now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Now, this is interesting. This is the Apostle John. Now, as you know, several years ago, we went through the Gospel of John. There is no more creative writer in the first century than John. There is no one who describes in powerful detail spiritual realities. He goes on and on in his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, about the love of God. Right? John 3, 16, God loved the world that he gives his only son. Just like the, the serpent was, was lifted up for those who were delivered from Egypt and they were delivered from poison by looking to the serpent, so also those who look to Jesus, who is now raised up, will find new life and salvation in him. Right? What a beautiful picture. There's no one more poetic in the Bible, I would say. And that's why God entrusted to John this vision of things that would encourage the first century church of things that were to come. They were about to be persecuted, and so God gives John a vision of what is to come so that they would be comforted. And he goes into great detail describing the spiritual reality of what is to come in persecution, but the victory of God over all of these things. He, he is never short on words to describe in detail amazing things that happen. And did you notice when the war between God and Satan broke out and John had the opportunity to describe it for you and me, do you know what he did? He hit the space bar one time. The war between good and evil, the war between God and the devil was so amazing. Did you hear how he described it? Space, but he was defeated. I mean, one of the, this is one of the wordiest guys in the New Testament. 
When he sees something God shows him, he just wants to tell us about it. It goes on and on about the love of God and the love that we experience together as a church in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But when he gets a vision of the war between Jesus and Satan, did you hear it? He gets a gap. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. Friend, there is a spiritual reality. There is a spiritual reality that, that clamors for us. And, and I'm pointing this out so that like the New Testament encourages you and I, we would fight sin. We would flee the enemy. We would be aware of the temptations that, that the enemy and spiritual powers want to, want to hold us down with. But I want you to be aware of it not so that you'll be afraid. I want you to be aware of it so you'll see exactly what Jesus came to do and did. And the battle between Jesus and evil doesn't even get a verse. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Okay. What would they do? Like, what were the weapons? How long did the battle go? And you know what John thinks about that battle? He thinks so highly of it, he says it doesn't matter. Do you know what matters? Verse 8, he's defeated. And friend, when we see Jesus exercising authority for, for these men, authority over the spiritual realm, you and I are meant to have the same kind of comfort. Oh, the enemy, the, the devil, as, as James tells us, and even as Peter tells us, he prowls around to destroy us like a lion, picking on the weak and the weary. But friend, that, that lion has been defeated. Jesus is Lord over all these things. Now look at the second half as we begin to kind of transition to how people respond. Let me give you an application for that section that knowledge is not a substitute for faith. That is, did you see that the demons knew who Jesus was? The demons were more theologically astute than you or me. The demons saw Jesus in a way that even the people around him did not. They knew something about Jesus that even you and I might not know. And yet the knowledge of who Jesus is is not a substitute for faith, for submission, for discipleship, for following Jesus and laying down our lives for him, for seeing him as the greatest treasure ever. We saw this when we went through the letter of James. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Right? So, I want, to, I, want to, I want you to hear very clearly, right? In the life of our church, we care very much about sound doctrine. We care very much about the truth. We care very much about getting it right. But hear what James says and hear what these demons demonstrate for us. If that alone is what you strive for, great job. That'll make a great application for demon. Sound doctrine is not the most important thing. Trusting in Jesus is. Knowledge is not a substitute for faith. These demons had knowledge, and yet God was pleased to use them as a mechanism to display his judgment and wrath. And so, friend, we, we want to get it right. We, we want to know who Jesus is. We want to dig into the mysteries of faith and, and see how God has revealed himself. But, friend, don't let, and this is, a, man, for all you nerdy folk in the room who want to, like, nerd out and overthink things and you were super heady, hear the warning. Hear the warning. All of your study, all of your knowledge, 
And here, I've got a few degrees in this field, right? All of your knowledge won't get you out of the status of demon. But seeing Jesus as Lord and laying down our life for him will. This is helpful for us, especially as we're walking through the Psalms, right? The Psalms that, that help us to deal with suffering. And if knowledge is not a substitute for faith, this has been helpful for me as I've kind of struggled through this for the last 15 years, is like, I regularly ask why. Why, God, why? That's not a bad question to ask. It's a natural question to ask. But let me confess to you why it's a problematic question for me. Underneath that question of why is the assumption that if I understood it, it wouldn't hurt anymore. Underneath that, I'm assuming that once I figure it out, I'll be Lord over it. I'll have mastered it. And, and so why is a good question. The Lord will answer. But sometimes it can be deceptive because we think if I knew why, it would make this easier. If I knew why, and just be careful, that can at times be subtly putting hope in our understanding. And we're called, you can hear, hear the language of the Old Testament prophets, right? Trust in the Lord, in all your ways acknowledge him, right? This, this idea that you would lean not in your own understanding. And sometimes, this may not be you, this may just be for me and the other heady people in the room, when I ask God why, it's my way of leaning on my own understanding. And Matthew gives us a provocative picture here, doesn't he? Demons knew why. Right? They didn't even question it, right? They, weren't, they were like, well, he's going to come and judge the living and the dead. He's going he's to judge the, the devil and his, and his angels. That's us. I'm just, really, I'm just really disappointed I didn't know what day it was happening. They knew why. And sometimes we might also, but that might distract us and trick us into thinking that knowledge and understanding is a substitute for faith. Knowledge and understanding can help bolster faith. It's a great addition to faith. James and Peter tell us this, but they're not a replacement for trusting in Jesus. Now, look how this second part ends up. We just saw Jesus casting out demons, but then we see the people casting out Jesus. He says, go, off with you. They came out, went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the sheep and the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. And then the herdsmen, right, the people entrusted with care of these sheep, or excuse me, not sheep, that's a different chapter, right? <laughs> steep bank, not sheep. They were caring for these pigs. They went into the city and told everything that they saw. Now, many commentarians will come along at this point and point out some of the things that are really helpful, and they're helpful symbol, like symbolic language for us, that when Jesus comes in and wrecks shop, it has a financial cost. Right? This is one of the most powerful affronts to the prosperity gospel, that to trust God means that you will be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Nope. To trust God will always mean sacrifice and losing things, and Christians throughout history have known that. This cost someone, and as a result, they wanted Jesus to leave. So I think of the, the picture of Acts chapter 14, 15 through 17, that churches were planted, and because the idol worshipers started like, losing their business, they started riots. Oh, how cool would it be that Jesus would move in our church so powerfully that people would want us to leave? That, that idol worshiping would lose business because of what Jesus is doing in this room. That people are like, I can't, I can't afford all you Jesus people. 
and just get a picture of the cost of what the lordship of Jesus brings, in this case, literally to the unclean. It's a picture of what Jesus will even endure. But in this particular case, the people reject him. And that's because people reject holy power. People reject holy power. They saw Jesus and they were terrified. They were terrified. But notice, the thing that terrified them wasn't just the loss. It wasn't just the spectacle of the pigs. Although we find, apparently in, chapter, in verse 33, that was a part of what the herdsmen said. But did you hear what really shocked the people? Did you get this? The herdsmen fled. I mean, just what a beautiful picture, right? Like, I don't know what you do for work, but what would happen? At, what would have to happen at your job for you just to take off running, right? <laughs> right? Just, I, mean, I don't know what you, makes you run, but just, that's what they were like. They just bolted. This is the shock of this thing. They go and they tell everything that happened, but notice what Matthew wants us to know about what is said. Mark and Luke tell us the same story, but highlight something different. Matthew, in a picture of the lordship of Jesus, says that they especially told what happened to what? The demon-possessed men. And then, behold, right? This is the, the language for, and then. You'll never guess what happened next, right? The whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. It was because it, certainly something had cost to them, but did you notice what scared them the most? That Jesus restored these people. Think of it this way. Do you remember how they treated them? They were so terrified of these two men that they cast them out and kept a safe distance. And now they have been introduced to someone who is Lord over the scariest thing they can imagine. And you would think in that moment they would say, Thank you, Jesus. I'm so grateful. But notice their first response is to reject perfect and holy power because the thing they were really afraid of evidently bowed to Jesus. Notice then the, the alternative response. If you want an application for the second section, the alternative re response to trust in Jesus is terror. I, I want to encourage you to lean into that. The beautiful eminence of God in Christ is amazing, right? Jesus is our homeboy. He really is. He's a friend. He cares for us, but I loved how Pastor Ryan helped us to recover that even a couple weeks ago. The thing that makes it amazing that Jesus is our friend is the fact that he shouldn't be. Is that a fact that he is so holy and pure and righteous to touch us, to be even related to us would defile him, and yet his holiness and his majesty is so powerful, it overcomes all uncleanness and casts it out. But that also means that when we see Jesus as he truly is, will want to cast him out. Do you see the good news in this? The power of Jesus. There's no magical formula. Instead, it's just be gone. He has power over the things that are evil and demonic in the world. There's, there are no match for him. We've already seen that disease submits to Jesus. We've already seen that nature, creation, the wind and the waves and chaos submits to Jesus. And now we see that demons submit to Jesus. And I want to ask you, will you? Will you? 
After all, who would you trust with matters of spirituality? A demon? They seem to have a pretty good grip on things. And yet he was not welcome. Now, side note, don't let that diminish the fact that because Jesus is not welcome for what he's called to be and to do, in many ways, you and I will not be either. Sin makes us unwelcome in this world because ultimately, we will die. The effects and fruit of sin and the thorns and thistles that it brings make us unwelcome in this world, and we cannot remain here, both physically and spiritually, but identifying with Jesus also makes us unwelcome in a sinful world. People will reject holiness, and that's because Jesus is the Son of God who comes to overpower spiritually oppressive forces and to overpower our rebellion against him. Because you see, this is not the end of the story. For every one of us, we have, like this group of people, seen the spectacle of our sin and the brokenness in the world and seen Jesus and turned against him. We would rather deal with things on our own, wouldn't we? I mean, I'm, you know, right, I'd, I was happier with the demon-possessed guys than I am with this guy, right? At least we knew what we got over here. Just stay away. We're good. This guy, he's got power over the things I'm even terrified of. And in our own way, each of us has turned to and trusted in things lesser than Jesus. And yet Jesus has come to overpower and conquer all the spiritually oppressive things that wage war against our souls and our eternities. And in addition to that, he has come to wage war against our own rebellion against him. Because just like these people, even though we have rebelled against him, this isn't the story, end of the story. Jesus goes and he takes the place of these people. Jesus exercises his authority, not in the way that you or I or, or your evil dictator that comes to your mind exercises authority. Jesus exercises authority by forgiving, by restoring, by calling those who are cast out into new life. Don't you love how he sees the humanity? Like, these men were only known for their past and they were only known and feared for, for how unpredictable they were. And Jesus looks right through who they were and restores the very image of God that he created in them. And he looks right past the fear and rebellion of these people and begins to offer himself as a comfort, as a sacrifice, as a redeeming work to draw them back in. Why is Jesus not some authoritarian? Look at the text. They marveled at especially what Jesus made of those demon-possessed men. Every authoritarian leader strikes fear. That's not new. What's new here, what confounds the imagination of those people, and I invite to inf confound your own imagination, is what Jesus does. Every powerful person strikes fear, but not Jesus, not for those who see how much they need him. He uses the, his power to do what? To calm chaos, and here, to deliver people such that people, we find, are more valuable than pigs. People are more valuable to Jesus than someone's fortune in livestock. These men were demon-possessed, and yet they were shockingly transformed. Remember that question I asked you, where are you spiritually safe? What answer came to mind? Did you think of your couch? I mean, a home is great. It's awesome. Did you find yourself thinking, that's my spiritual haven? My spiritual safe place is in my home? 
That's my refuge and strength. Where are you spiritually safe? Do you think of your family? Where are you spiritually safe? Where do you, where do you feel you're under or away from and safe from spiritual attack? Is it your job? Is it your success? Friend, the only spiritually safe place is with Jesus. And while the alternative response to trusting in Jesus is terror, friend, be aware of the spiritual reality that assails your heart and soul and mind, not so that you will experience fear, but so that you'll begin to realize the battle that was waged here in this story and the battle that was waged in heaven lasted a moment, and Jesus is the conqueror. And Jesus came to those who would reject him, who would even side against him. And friend, if, Je if demons can get Jesus, if demons can see Jesus, there's hope for us. <laughs> The pagan, the demons, and the dead, you might think you're too far gone. You might think there's no hope for you, but you're not too far gone for Jesus. Jesus is so clean, he cleans whatever he touches. Jesus is so good that he makes good and right everything that he speaks to. Jesus has come that we would have life. And even though we have rebelled against him like these people and want to cast him out, he takes our place anyway. That we might trust him, find new life in him and find victory in his resurrection. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your goodness towards us in Christ. God, we gaze at spiritual realities here. They're, they're, they're beyond our ability to understand. Lord, they're far beyond my ability to explain. But I pray that we would have comfort and joy in knowing who you are. Maybe for some of us in this room, the, the idea of a spiritual reality is is just too far-fetched, might we even now begin to have a sanctified imagination to consider what is possible, that there is a God who created all things and he is redeeming all things in Christ. And some of the things we can't explain, even the awful things that we experience in our own lives, things that we can't quite put to words are, are attacks of the enemy to separate us from the love and comfort in Christ. Might today we turn to him, might we find him as our refuge Maybe for some of us we know this, but we're assailed at every side and feel overwhelmed. Might we be reminded of the victory of Jesus? There is no weapon formed against us that will prosper. All that will rise up against us will fall. Might we, like the, uh, like the servant of Elijah, begin to realize that greater are the ones that are with us than with them. When we see the the attack of the enemy, like Elijah comforting his servant, might we have our eyes open that they are chariots of fire surrounding our enemies and they stand no chance against the word of Jesus. And he says, go, and they leave. Might you speak that word of comfort and truth over all of us. Give us peace. Remind us of your victory over all spiritual realities. Give us the ability now to live by faith in light of your power and authority over evil. Let us look through the evil we experience in our own hearts and in the world. Let us look straight through it and be reminded of who stands over it and who commands it to go, who will not let it get the last word. That is Jesus, and we ask you these things in his name. Amen.